the demand for quality is extraordinarily high. There's very, very little patience or, uh, you know, there's acceptability for any deviation from specification. We tend to look at results. Does it work or does it not? Whereas, you know, the Japanese are, are very, very quality conscious. And I, I think rightly so, frankly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential for a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm sharing a conversation with Kevin Kroll. Currently, he is president of Asia Pacific Group, a company that he started nearly 30 years ago. And is the chief cross cultural outreach officer of the organization Pacific Tango Group. Kevin has decades of experience working in Japan and with Japanese people and companies, so be sure to listen in to learn more about his background and what he's learned from his wide ranging experiences with Japan. But before we get into the episode, let's go over some Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the word monozukuri. Mo no zukuri. Monozukuri. Monozukuri is essentially just the Japanese translation of the word manufacturing or craftsmanship. But be sure to listen to the previous episode with Francis Pacheco to learn more about this term and its significance in Japanese business culture. This week, I want to teach a word that comes up towards the end of today's conversation. Shumi. 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 The most common translation of shumi into English is probably the word hobby. However, people who visit Japan are commonly impressed by how seriously many people in the country take these hobbies. Rather than just being a way to blow off steam after work, Japanese people will often devote quite a bit of time, money, and energy on going deep into their chosen shumi. Be sure to listen to the end of today's conversation to hear what Kevin has to say about the topic. My name is Kevin Kroll, and I am with.、Uh... A couple of different companies,、uh, Pacific Tango Group, which is a consortium of service providers who、uh, work within the Asian market space. I also have my own company, which is called Asia Business Group, a company that I've held since 1992. And、uh, then I also have been dabbling in real estate as well. Yeah, sounds like you're pretty good about keeping busy, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I do like being busy. So, could you share a little bit more about your history with Japan specifically? Sure.、Um, so, I, I hope I'm not going to bore you to death, but、um, it, it、uh, well, let me kind of start at the beginning. So,、uh, I'm originally from Connecticut. I am truly a Connecticut Yankee. My family goes back into the 1700s in Connecticut.、Um, and for some reason in my family,、um, we've always had a love of learning foreign languages and cross cultural contact. Uh, my grandfather was orphaned at a young age, and he was raised by his grandparents. My great grandfather, actually, that would be my great great grandfather, was actually a minister with Dwight Moody for a while of Moody Bible College. And he was stationed in Florence, Italy. And from Florence, he would travel through northern Africa preaching. 
And uh, when my grandfather was orphaned, he was raised by his grandparents and went over to live in Florence where he um, became fluent in Italian. And during both world wars, he acted as a uh, interpreter translator. And my father was very impressed by this. During the Korean War, rather than be drafted, he enlisted into the Air Force, who promptly sent him to language school to learn Russian. So my dad learned Russian and was then stationed in Germany, uh, where he monitored Russian broadcasts. He picked up German and uh, became uh, fluent in German and had, has had a, a lifelong love of German culture. He lived in Germany for you know, several years during the war and then went back as an adult and lived, I think, 10 or 15 years in, uh, in Germany as well. And so I kind of grew up with this in my DNA. The, the small Connecticut town I grew up in was um, not very diverse. I kind of wanted, I really enjoyed that cross-cultural aspect of, uh, of things. And as a high school student in this little sort of lily white town, for some reason, we had area studies classes. And uh, I started by taking an African studies class, then a Latin American studies class, then an Asian studies class, and was just thrilled at, at being able to learn about different cultures and different peoples. And from there, when I went to college, I, uh, my first class Monday morning at 9 a.m. was Asian studies. I developed a particular interest in that and kind of kept going. At one point, uh, I had to make a decision whether to study Chinese or Japanese. And um, thinking back on my dad and his studying Russian, which he never used professionally because Russia was pretty much closed to commerce and industry, I kind of thought, well, I'll, I'll study Japanese. And um, the love affair with the language and with the country just kind of took off from there. After I graduated, I went to live in Japan for about three years, first in a small rural uh, area, living with a Japanese family, working in their juku, teaching English to uh, small children and adults, and uh, then moved to Kobe for where I was for two years, uh, working primarily for Kobe Steel. Then when I came back, I started a uh, MBA program and then was hired by a Japanese uh, company that I'd made contact with when I was living there and uh, started their U.S. office and from there went to Toshiba. So all told, I was working for Japanese subsidiaries for about 10 years and then got the idea that, gee, if I could be helping Japanese businesses here on, you know, enter into the U.S. market, I ought to be able to do the opposite, helping American companies then go to Japan. So I started my own company, which was then called Japan Business Group, and um, then sort of really uh, started working with uh, American suppliers to the uh, radio frequency market, essentially cellular telephony, to get them uh, up and running in Japan, and uh, have been doing that and over the course of years without getting into too much detail uh, now i'm working with more japanese companies coming to the u.s and uh, that's been that's been really great it's, it's allowed me to use my language skills which uh, admittedly are getting pretty rusty through the through covid but it has allowed me to really maintain that love of the language and the love of the japanese culture 
Japanese language is definitely a, a use it or lose it <laughs> sort of situation. Yeah. So I, I read and write daily. Um, the opportunities to speak um, are less frequent. So my, you know, my spoken Japanese is, it has gotten a little, little bit rusty, as I say. It doesn't take long for it to come back, um, and I should probably be doing more uh, watching of Japanese TV and, and and the like. But you know, at this point in my career, it, it seems that when I need it, it it does come back, and uh, yeah, it, it always is that you know, sort of struggle. But I uh, still, I just love love speaking it and love being able to communicate. It allows me to communicate on a level with people that otherwise I may not uh, be able to get to know in that way. It's obviously something that goes away quickly like if I don't speak for a few days I do feel like it starts to get rusty but like you, as you said it does come back pretty quickly so something to be aware of but not stress about too much probably for people it's kind of amazing how how your residual memory works and and I think it works the same in English as it does in Japanese there are so many words that I have a uh, a residual memory of that I don't that I don't speak if I hear them once, I'll say, oh yeah, I know that word. I can, I can start using it. And it's the same in Japanese. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about what most of your work is now specifically? You mentioned that a big part sure. is now primarily focused on helping companies move into the U.S. Right. So it's been kind of an interesting evolution. As I, when I started my business um, back in the 90s in, in my area, I'm located in Chicago, the largest, most successful company was Motorola. Motorola had come out with this unique product, uh, cellular telephone, and um, they were leading the world in, in cellular telephony. They had brought their supplier base along with them, worked with those suppliers to uh, have them develop and produce parts that could be used at high frequencies, were miniaturized so that uh, you could put them into a smaller phone, even though it, it, in the 90s, it's hardly what we'd call small today. But those suppliers had developed a unique technology. And a lot of them were just sort of mom and pop shops that had uh, stayed with, uh, started with um, Motorola when Motorola was uh, fairly small, when they were making radios and TVs. And they didn't have a whole lot of international savvy. So as, uh, as Motorola was succeeding, Japanese um, handset manufacturers were trying to get into the market. They were locating production facilities over in the United States. But all of that design work was being done in Japan. And for uh, an American company, particularly a small mom and pop shop, to try and, and really sell their products in Japan um, was difficult. They needed somebody who could uh, negotiate both sides of, of that equation. So that's where I stepped in. And um, I did everything from soup to nuts. Uh, when, uh, when I started, it was just a one-man operation. So we put together the business strategy. We got them ready to export. I went over to Japan and did the market research, figured out you know, who the main contacts and targets should be, and then actually did the sales work, set up lines of distribution, handled key accounts, everything. It was not ideal, but I found that it was difficult to find, at that time, to find a Japanese um, who would be able to work in under those circumstances for a small fledging American company. It took me 10 years to find somebody who could actually uh, work with me over in Japan to 
help my clients on the ground there. Found a great guy and you know he was able to essentially take over that Japan portion so that he'd be able to give you know real-time support to Japanese customers. And that made all the difference in the world. Fast forward now into the 2000s, China has really come onto the marketplace strong. It was really at a, it was, it was an inflection point for a lot of American companies. Do they spend time trying to open up the Japanese market or, you know, do they sort of leapfrog over Japan, maybe go to Korea or, or then ultimately the target being China. Uh, And that's exactly what um, a lot of companies started doing. They would forsake the Japanese market and um, go into either Korea or China. I became Asia Business Group from Japan Business Group, found partners in those countries and started providing service to my clients over there. Although really never had a, uh, a big organization in China because my, my value benefit wasn't as great. Most companies could find Chinese who were bilingual who would work for a lot less than I, I was willing to work for. But point being that the, the Japanese business that I had was dwindling. I went back to that model of working with Japanese coming inbound into the United States because by, particularly by about 2005 and certainly by uh, uh, 2010, a lot of Japanese companies were realizing that China was not the mother load that they thought it was going to be. Doing business in China is difficult. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, IP issues. And the Japanese brand in the United States has always remained strong. And I think they found that um, it was a lot more profitable, and a lot more beneficial to continue selling to the American market. And so I was then started working with small to actually every, everyone from small to mid-sized companies on up to large uh, Fortune 500s, helping them to improve their, their sales into the U.S. market. And uh, I still continue to do that. I, I have business actually on both sides of the equation, both, both inbound and outbound to the U.S. But I would say that at this point, uh, it's tipped more inbound. Yeah, there's probably a whole episode worth of content in discussing the difference between people's expectations about the opening Chinese market versus what's really ended up coming to pass in recent years. But just focusing on Japan specifically. Mm -hmm. So Japan is notorious for valuing strong long-term business relationships, Mm -hmm. but there's another practice in Japanese corporate culture where people are rotated to new positions every few years. And I was just curious what sort of impact you've seen that have on trying to cultivate those long-term business relationships. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, So I've seen it work uh, both as an employee of a Japanese subsidiary and on the side of, say, someone who is providing service to those companies or working with American companies trying to sell into Japanese subsidiaries. It is not ideal, uh, quite frankly. The rotation cycle typically lasts anywhere between three to five years. It's great for uh, educating Japanese executives in how foreign markets work. At least that is the expectation. But what happens is, is that for a Japanese subsidiary, and having been an employee at a Japanese subsidiary, 
the I found that the uh, it disrupted the whole uh, leadership training cycle. So typically, uh, any any American that went into that subsidiary would really be capped in terms of how far uh, they could advance. There there was a very clear rice paper ceiling, as it were. It's been interesting in the last uh, 15 years or so, you see more and more uh, C-suite level Americans at subsidiaries. But my suspicion is, and I don't think I could really say for certain, but my suspicion is, is that uh, a lot of those are more figureheads and that the real decision-making is being made by um, people, uh, Japanese behind that, uh, that position. And the amount, uh, there, there's always been a disparity between responsibility and authority. So uh, at, at subsidiaries and that responsibility for whatever that, uh, that particular role is uh, may be very high, but the authority would, would rest primarily with the uh, expat. And that's, that's tough. So what I found in Japanese subsidiaries and often is, is that uh, you know, these people would come in from Japan and then you know, get to know the US market just about the time where you had really kind of gotten them to a point where they understood the dynamics of the US market. They went back and they were replaced by someone who was green. So there was that whole process of re-educating that person. It, it, it was inefficient, quite frankly. And um, that, that inefficiency, I think, uh, ultimately costs them profitability. From the standpoint of a contractor to a Japanese company, it's, it's pretty much the same trajectory. So just when you've gotten um, your uh, Japanese uh, interface, your counterpart, um, understanding what the market trends are, what, how, the, you know, how, how business is done in the United States, that person is called back to Japan and then a new person comes in. The new person ideally would be you know, great if, if they were in an international uh, role before and they're used to that. And I've seen that happen. It can be, you know, I think you're getting a level of Japanese managers who are much more globalized, much more internationalized than they were before. So when that, when that person comes from another assignment, say in, you know, from, from Southeast Asia or China or wherever, and they come in, they're much more able to immediately get up to speed. But oftentimes what happens is that you get somebody who uh, is being trained into that sort of international management role. And that's where it becomes, again, you know, sort of a step back where that person has to, you know, take a long time to be brought up to speed. So that's, uh, that, that's really, it, it's changing and it's, it's fluid, it's dynamic, but there's still work that needs to be done there. And I think over time that will, that hopefully will, will write itself. From the standpoint of a, an American company trying to sell into a Japanese company, there's always, again, that, that tension of, you know, who should I be talking to? Who is my target? Is my target the, uh, the American in that company who has the responsibility for perhaps purchasing my product, or is it someone else? And you know, that's something that uh, it's incumbent upon the American company to, to suss out for themselves. Who's the real decision maker in that, 
in that case. It's interesting how it can be easy for non-Japanese people to look at that sort of system in Japan and just say, oh, that doesn't make any sense. It's inefficient. But as you said, it has an educational purpose. So in a Japanese context where the company really values people sticking around for a long time, ideally lifetime employment, and because of that, they want to cultivate generalists, that sort of system <laughs> for education makes sense. But as you said, it can be extremely inefficient. And, and I think really what happens is you have a clash of cultures in this sense. You, on the one hand, you have the Japanese who are expecting to create these generalists. And there's a ton of good reasons why that's a great model. And then we, you have on the American side, specialists. Again, a, a lot of great reasons why that can be uh, you know, a, a great model. The issue is, is when you bring those two together and the expectations are not met, then you have a, a very volatile situation. And I've seen this happen a lot in subsidiaries where someone is brought in to do a job. They're kind of stymied. There's this whole education component that they don't, that the American doesn't understand, that it's going to take time for them to learn the organization. They may have a very specific skill set, which they've honed over years, uh, you know, working for, for previous companies. The Jap- they go into a Japanese company, the Japanese company is thinking, yep, great guy, he knows his stuff. We really want him to stick around. They try and make a generalist out of him and boom, it, it, it kind of blows up. And typically what would happen in that situation, I've seen it happen a lot, is that the American employee leaves and there's a lot of hard feelings on both sides. And probably the, the biggest fallout of all of this is, is that enduring lack of trust. And I, uh, you know, I think that it's hard for a Japanese employer to feel that they can trust an American employee if they believe that that person is going to leave for another position, possibly at a competitor. So, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to get those expectations correct from the outset that's really important. Yeah, especially cross-culturally managing expectations becomes one of the most important things. It is. Moving on a little bit to Japanese consumers. Sure. You wrote on your LinkedIn profile that Japanese consumers make up pretty much the most demanding market. <laughs> and what did you mean by that? You know, the, the demand for quality is extraordinarily high. In a, in a B2B uh, transaction, um, one business selling to another, there's very, very little patience or, uh, you know, there's acceptability for any deviation from specification. If you're selling electronic components, uh, you know, that, that tolerance on the, on the main product has to be exactly within spec. But then there are also minor things like cosmetics. Say if you're producing capacitors, uh, if the capacitors look a little bit off yet are fully functional and operating within specification, they may be rejected. And that's something that's very hard for an American company to understand. We tend to look at results. Does it work or does it not? Whereas you know the Japanese are, are very, very quality conscious. And I, I think rightly so, frankly, to demand 
that a product be produced in the exact way and manner in which it is specified at, including some of the cosmetic issues as well. So from the B2B side, you know, there's there's a, a huge demand and really desire for, for quality. On the uh, business to consumer side, it's equally as high. So I think, well, probably one of the best examples I can give is when my wife and I were living in Japan, she bought a, uh, a woolen overcoat. And uh, now more than 40 years past, she still has that thing. And it looks as, as amazing as it did when she bought it. Uh, you know, it, it's so well tailored. It, it's just, it, you know, and the, the fabric hasn't pilled. And, you know, it, it's, just, it's just a really nice, high quality uh, garment. It was expensive. It was really expensive. But we've had it for 40 years. And that's something that I think Americans have a very, very different concept of. You know, we want something that's acceptably, has an acceptably high quality, but is acceptably inexpensive. I mean, you know, we don't want to buy cheap, cheap, usually, but, you know, the, the quality can be good enough. And that's not something that I see in Japan, either on the business to consumer side or business to business side. And that is also something that's really difficult for Japanese companies to understand when they come into the United States, because they'll, you know, let's focus on the business to business side. If they have a product which lasts longer, has uh, uh, cost efficiencies uh, in uh, the way that perhaps it can be integrated into the end user's uh, production and is a little bit more expensive, American companies just don't want it for a couple of reasons. One is there may be a life cycle mismatch. I was once uh, uh, talking to a, a client, they, they made tractor trailers, you know, the, the trailer part of a tractor trailer. And my client had a type of steel, it was a coated steel product that would last 20 times longer in salt spray testing than regular steel. In other words, it's, it's highly anti-corrosive. And um, it was a little bit more expensive to use, but you know, 20 times the life. I mean, you could you could have that that trailer now for probably you know ad infinitum, uh, as long as the wheels don't don't uh, give out. And the uh, the American uh, engineer that I was speaking with said, well, you know, the average life of a trailer is seven years. That's all anybody wants it for. And then they sell it. Why would we need your product? We, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, he was right. I mean, in, in, if, if, the, if the expected life of this uh, product was only seven years, who's gonna care if it lasts 21, you know, whatever, 42 years, um, because no one's gonna want it anyways. So there's that mismatch. And it's, I think it's very difficult for Japanese marketers to get that concept of, you know, sometimes it's just good enough. I'm not saying that they should understand that, but certainly they need to understand that sometimes, you know, when they're looking at what niches uh, they want to fill, that sometimes they have to factor in that whole quality uh, piece as well. 
Yeah, that's very fascinating because it kind of ties into what you were saying before about trying to cultivate generalists versus trying to cultivate specialists at risk of just falling straight into stereotypes. This is just as kind of a reference for people to think about things in a more general way. So in Japan, obviously the stereotype surrounding business culture is Kaizen, gradual improvement, obsessing over making things better over time. Whereas obviously the stereotype in the US is fail fast, innovate, disrupt. So in reality, most of the time it's somewhere in the middle. And on top of that, the ideal completely depends on the context. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, what I find, what I find most satisfying and most appealing about what I do is the opportunity to, to continually break down stereotypes. As humans, I think we, we naturally categorize things. That's how we learn. We take information, we put it into a group, we store it, and then we, we compare based off those, those groupings that we put in our head. And uh, I'm going to be the first to admit that I stereotype, you know, um, it, it's, it's sort of a natural thing. And what I love about what I do is that every time I think I understand the Japanese, I meet with someone, I speak with them, and my, my entire world is blown apart because they don't fit into that category. That, that stereotype just gets blown to pieces. And, you know, I think that happens in, you know, when I speak to Americans as well, but it's a little different because I'm speaking in a second language. I'm listening harder. I'm, you know, my, my whole interest in cross-cultural communications and cross-cultural contact, it has primed me for that moment. And uh, I just love it when I, 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 that whole construct that I've built up in my head is completely blown apart. It gives me such great faith in humanity. I often say this, and, and I'm wondering if you would agree, the most strongly individual people I know in the world are Japanese. Whereas the stereotype is that, you know, here we are Americans, we have this rugged individualism and, you know, we're, we're all cowboys out on the range lassoing our, uh, our steer. But I tell you, the, the Japanese that, I, I know so many Japanese who are so strongly and committedly individualists that it, it's, it, it's mind blowing. We think of them as being this monolithic culture and everyone following in lockstep. And that's about as far from true as I can imagine. Do you find that the same? Well, yeah, um, it's not something that I could call myself <laughs> much of an expert in, but I wonder if it has to do with cultural expectations. Like if you're a rugged individualist in the U.S., it's like, okay, join the club. Whereas <laughs> in Japan, if you kind of crave cultivating your own identity, you have to go at it with 100% of who you are because... The expectations are just a little bit different in terms of how society sees you and how society expects you to behave. But again, looking at culture, it's all just a 
tool. So anytime you talk about culture, you're just coming up with ideas that are tools, but you don't use those tools on individuals. Individuals are still <laughs> individuals. You just use those tools to help you understand an individual's behavior, not to kind of put them together and say, okay, you're a Japanese, therefore you are all, all of these things. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point, yeah. Just moving on a little bit. So we already talked about the standards of Japanese consumers, but are there any things that foreign companies can do specifically to help actually gain traction in the Japanese market? That seems to be a real pain point for people yeah. trying to move in. Yeah. So I think if you look back at what has been successful in Japan on a consumer level, branding, you know, highly branded lifestyle products, and look at how, how incredibly well Apple has done in Japan. Apple is, is not just a product. It, it's a brand. It's a lifestyle. Uh, it's a choice. Back in the early 90s when uh, it was very difficult for cellular handset manufacturers to enter into the Japanese market, including, well, at that time, Apple didn't have a product, but, you know, including Motorola, the, the big guys, I never would have thought that Apple would have the market share that it has today. But it makes a whole lot of sense because they, they really relied on that, that culture and the brand that they created around that, that culture. And admittedly, a lot of which, you know, came from Japan. You know, S Steve Jobs was a, a, a huge fan of Japanese quality and design. So it's, it's not, you know, it shouldn't have been unthinkable, but it, at the time it seemed that um, things, the way the technology was moving and the way the Japanese uh, had had constructed their um, uh, their their bandwidth requirements for cellular that it was uh, that everyone was going to get shut out except the you know the fourteen Japanese uh, uh, handset manufacturers. But that gradually changed, and now we have uh, you know it was funny. I was in Tokyo a couple of years ago, and I was sitting on the train and uh, trying to count how many people I saw on the train on Apple phones, and it was by far you know over fifty percent, a lot. So branding. I think luxury items have always sold very well. And uh, back to lifestyle, I think, you know, this whole concept of, uh, you know, the sort of freewheeling, easygoing American culture still sells in Japan. You know, blue jeans, oh my gosh. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but vintage blue jeans are actually a thing in Japan. T-shirts, you know, the vintage T-shirts, on and on and on. So there are opportunities out there, but you know you have to be you have to know your niche. It's like anything else. It's interesting how there was kind of a natural culture fit, at least in terms of Apple. So definitely yeah. something that other companies can think about in terms of their targets in Japan, mm -hmm. their target consumers in Japan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on on the B two B side, um, it really is all about niche marketing. What is it that you have that your Japanese competitors don't. And it's not always a product differentiation. You know, the best is having some sort of patented technology that differentiates you from everyone else on the block. That's hands down the best. Short of that though, 
one of the things that uh, large Japanese say, you know, my, my area of expertise is primarily in the uh, electronic components. So a lot of Japanese component manufacturers are loath to supply small to mid-sized Japanese companies. They don't, they don't want small orders. They're, they want you know, large repeatable orders only. So these small to mid-sized companies uh, really get the short end of the stick. An American company that goes in and is willing to sell in smaller lots uh, at reasonable prices, and mind you, it's smaller lots, you're going to be able to get a better profit. You know, it's, it, it is disruptive because the TDKs, the Muratas of, uh, of, the, uh, of the world, they don't want to deal with that. They're perfectly happy just to uh, walk away from that business. It's very interesting. Definitely something to look into in terms of a way into Japan instead of just trying to target these large companies. There's an underserved medium to small sized Absolutely. population in Japan. That's Absolutely. great to hear. Well, not for them, but in terms of <laughs> <laughs> people looking for opportunities. So you mentioned to me in our previous conversation that your mentors at Kobe Steel in the past had a huge impact on you while you were working in Japan. Could you tell us a little bit about what mentorship tends to look like in Japan? Yeah. So mentorship in Japan is, um, I should say, less specific in terms of you know, teaching you a, a skill. It's, it's less technical and more temperamental, that it goes back to what you were saying about raising generalists. So my mentors in Japan were less concerned about me learning specific routines or, you know, specific knowledge. That would come, but more important was to be able to approach, learn how to approach learning in a way that would open that information up to me. So to, you know, to learn patience, to learn persistence, that was huge. You know, I, when I went to Japan, I was in my early 20s and I was neither patient nor persistent. And it was, it was a revelation to me to really dig in deep to that. You know, we talked about individualism and in a sense, perhaps this is a, a self-selecting, mar- you know, self-selecting market, as it were, in that the mentors that I have had in Japan and have all been these sort of rugged individualists, people who had bucked the system for one reason or another, and perhaps they took a shine to me because I wasn't Japanese, because I, I was outside of that system. And it was safe for them to show their true selves to me in a way that they couldn't with their Japanese colleagues. And that enabled me to I think really get to know a, a, a subset of Japanese who I might certainly would not have other, otherwise known and to get the benefit of, of their knowledge and, um, and, and, and you know, expertise, wisdom. So you know, let me give you an ex- a couple of examples. When I told you I uh, lived in a small uh, country town, you know, small by Japanese standards, about 100,000. And I worked in, I lived with a family and worked in their uh, juku. Incredibly interesting family. The wife 
was the illegitimate child of a uh, Buddhist monk who was very high in the order. He had got had had gotten so high that he was allowed to have a child. Essentially, she grew up in a monastery. She married a man who was a communist, a Japanese communist, and uh, who was um, active in trying to organize the Toyota plant in the uh, uh, late. 50s, early 60s, which ultimately failed. He was blacklisted. He uh, was very intelligent and uh, very, very uh, good in math. Uh, they ended up opening up this juku, this cram school, and they uh, they essentially had nowhere else to go. They had to do this just to survive. So they bring this, they bring me in to teach English to these uh, young kids and uh, also some adults. And I just, you know, I was able to, to learn a lot about, you know, a different side of Japan than I think most people knew about. My mentor at Kobe Steel was a gentleman who um, just a very expansive thinker. He just, you know, he, he just, we had a lot of shared interests. We uh, bonded, or I, I like collecting antiques. And uh, we'd go out on uh, antique uh, uh, hunting exercises. Uh, occasionally, he'd show up my, up at my door with something that he found. He said, "I want you to have this." And it was, was he teaching me about how to do my job there? No, but he was teaching me incredible life lessons on generosity, uh, how to listen to people, how to really uh, succeed in a cross-cultural environment. And I, I just absolutely treasure those those that time with him and i've had others throughout you know throughout my career those are two that that just really have have stuck with me it's interesting to hear how there's a focus on helping people become the type of person who can succeed rather than learning skills developing their resume things like that that we would probably normally associate with mentorship yeah. in the united states <laughs> yeah Mind you, I wouldn't have minded that. I think I made a lot. No, of there's nothing wrong with skills. <laughs> but, but I think that's that's just uh, the difference between how it's approached in Japan and, and how it's approached uh, in the United States. And uh, you know, I, I I would assume that some some hybrid of that would be ideal. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't change anything. It was pretty valuable stuff. So, kind of going back to some of the work that you do and some insights you may have gained from the work that you do. What do you think the difference is between companies just trying to quote unquote Americanize themselves to find success in the US or American companies vice versa trying to quote unquote Japanize themselves um, in order to find success? What's yeah. the difference between that and working to genuinely cultivate a mutual understanding to yeah. find success? Yeah. So I'm going to backtrack just a little bit before I answer that and just say that one of the things that I always get a kick out of is um, when I when somebody under, meets me for the first time and they understand my connection with Japan, they immediately uh, give me their card and they, you know, they do it in the Japanese fashion. They, you know, they hold it with both their thumbs and they bow slightly and, and uh you know, they've obviously taken some sort of cross-cultural class or watched a YouTube on how to uh, exchange business cards in Japan. And what gives me a kick out of that is that, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, that's fine, that works. 
but it's it, that's the surface level. I don't know of any Japanese who has gotten really uh, offended by uh, an American, you know, passing their business card over with one hand or writing on their business card uh, later. People understand that kind of stuff. They're expecting there to be differences in, in, in cultures. I think by focusing too much on the mechanics, you lose sight of the big picture. And now I will transition into what you asked me. So how do you, how do you approach this cross-cultural chasm? I think of it as in three steps. I think it's, you know, one step is, you know, just adopting, you know, that sort of other cultures ways, becoming more Japanized, becoming more Americanized. So that's, I, I sort of think of it as, that's like being invited to a dance, right? You're, you're inviting someone to uh, an event. Then there is that point where you try and foster mutual appreciation and mutual understanding. And that's, that's when you ask that person to dance. You're not just inviting them to the dance, you're asking them to actively participate in that dance, dance with me, right? I take it a step further. And that final step involves essentially full immersion and, and free will, where to use this dance analogy, it's now I'm going to ask this person out on a date and I'm going to take that person and we're going to have an evening dancing together. Will you come with me? Would you like to, to participate in, in this event as a couple, essentially? So the analogy may be flawed somewhat, but I think what, my, what I'm trying to get at here is, is that full immersion is perhaps the best way to start breaking down some of these cultural divides. And that's something that I think is sorely missed on both sides of the Pacific. It's difficult for Americans uh, going to Japan to fully integrate into Japanese society uh, a lot uh, for their own reasons. They don't. They don't learn the language. They, they don't participate in activities that Japanese are, 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 are coordinating or um, promoting. It's you know, they, they hold, we hold ourselves back. And I think that's true on this side for Japanese coming to the United States as well. You know, that Japanese social hierarchy follows them when they are expats here. They end up spending a lot of time with other expats. They never meet uh, Americans and interact on a very meaningful way. And what I, what I really think is, and this, this became a bad word at, at some point, and I don't, I'm not sure why, but I think you need to go native, you know? It, it, back, back in the 50s and 60s, you, you know, if you read back through some of the uh, novels and things that, you, that, you, that were written at that time, you know, they, they disparaged someone because they went native. You know, they, they totally adopted the other culture. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. And certainly having the linguistic skills makes that a lot easier, but that's not even really what's, um, what's all that's required. I mean, what's really required is an act of free will where you say, you know what, 
I am going to very deliberately become a part of this culture and make this culture a part of who I am. And I think it's really only in that way that we can become successful in, in going back and forth between these two cultures. Does that mean you, you abandon your culture? No, it, it doesn't. But I, I think you know, we're fairly complex thinkers as humans and we can keep these dualities in our, in our minds. And, um, uh, and I think to me, that's, that's really what is um, at stake here. We need to be able to, to fluidly cross between those cultures and do it in a very meaningful and deliberate way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another useful way to think about it <laughs> might be relationships. So that you can live in such a way where the relationships you have with people has no impact on you as a person. You don't change based on the relationships. You kind of keep people at a distance, keep some formality. Or if you more sincerely enter into a relationship with someone, you are changed by it. You change the other person. You are changed by it in the future. No matter what happens, you're just not the same person. So that could be a useful way to think about it as well. I agree. I agree. So how does that idea kind of align with the work that you do as a chief cultural outreach officer, just one of your many titles? <laughs> right. Well, so that's, that's my title at Pacific Tango Group, chief cultural outreach officer. And um, we're just forming. Um, and part of, uh, uh, let me digress a little bit and say that uh, Pacific Tango Group is a consortium of business service providers to uh, Asian subsidiaries uh, in, in the United States. We're located in Chicago. And when we set up Pacific Tango Group, we very consciously set up a pacifictangogroup.org organization where we wanted to try and affect this disparity between cultures. And ultimately, uh, what we'd like to do is to start seeing more cross-cultural events, hosting cross-cultural events, providing an outlet where Asians from, you know, anywhere can come and really speak meaningfully, start to create relationships, you know, even just through simple things like, you know, a bowling night or um, getting together at a restaurant to exchange ideas and share a meal. Something very, very simple, but something which eludes that sort of expat experience very often. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what, you know, it's really just trying to create more opportunities for people to get together and to share thoughts through activities. Now, I, I really, when I lived in Japan, I loved doing that. I loved being able to, you know, get together with a group of friends and just go out and do things together. And uh, uh, I, I hope that, that uh, we can do that for expats living here in the in the Chicago area as well. It'll be great to see how that goes going forward as well. So I'll definitely be including some links in the description of the episode as well for my listeners so that you can all learn more about that. But yeah, having those spaces where people can be encouraged to break out of their expat bubbles. There's expat bubbles with expats in Japan Oh yeah. Korea, I've experienced both of those, but 
the same thing can happen to expats who come to the States as well. So creating those safe spaces for people to be encouraged to reach out beyond those bubbles is very mm -hmm. important. So just to kind of start wrapping things up for today, do you have any examples of a communication breakdown that you've experienced due to differences in culture? You know, I think I was thinking about this and I think it mostly has to do with mismatched expectations. And uh, on, uh, from, a, from a work standpoint, it, it typically revolves around issues of time uh, and duration. I know it, working in uh, Japanese uh, subsidiaries, there was always the question of, you know, when can I go home? <laughs> you know, do I have to stay here? I'm not doing anything productive, but, you know, my boss hasn't left yet. And I know what, you know, I know what the, what the expectations are. And uh, from, the, from the other side, you know, there's a frustration there. And from the other side, I think it really, that really feeds into this idea of loyalty. Should, is this person going to work out for the subsidiary long-term? They're, they're, you know, they, they wonder, those expectations need to be really worked on and, you know, fully vetted uh, upfront and understood. When I was working uh, back in the uh, 80s for uh, Japanese uh, companies, you know, they always said, oh, we know that you have family expectations at home, so you can go. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're, we're going to give you a pass on this. And that never felt really good. When I've spoken with Japanese women who uh, are now entering the workforce in greater numbers because of lack of uh, employees, they're given that same pass. Oh, we know that you have family considerations, so you can go early. And they're given a pass to leave early, but it's not—it's not something that is equal, you know. And that—that—that that, that is very disruptive to you know corporate culture. How do you how do you develop leaders within a a company when you have two tiers of? Uh, of employees, some who are given a break, some who are not. So, you know, those expectations need to be need to be put put to the light. Just because it's a pass doesn't mean that it's a free pass. <laughs> no. So if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan and they wanted to work in Japan or do business in Japan, but they really didn't have time to learn much about the country, its culture, its language, what would your recommendation be for them to learn before they go to Japan? And there's a time crunch? Hmm, that's a great question. I'm going to surprise myself when I say this. Um, I'd say uh, bring your hobby. Mm -hmm. What is it? What is it that you like to do that kind of defines you? And make sure that you have whatever that is with you when you go. Um, so, equipment. If you're a knitter bring your knitting things and you know maybe some examples of what you've done one of one of my favorite things about japan is shumi and uh, how uh, that and that means for your listeners who may not know it's hobby all japanese have hobbies and a hobby is not i mean it's, as americans we think of a hobby as you know something rather frivolous and in japan a hobby is an avocation and it's um, very, very serious to them. When someone tells you that, uh, you know, uh, that their hobby is playing guitar, 
you know, and you, you know, don't, don't think that it's something like, they're probably pretty damn good because they've been perfecting this thing forever. And uh, if you go in and, and you know, try and, uh, you know, say, oh, let's, let's get together and play some tunes, you're gonna get blown away. Bring that same passion, that passion that you have for something with you and then start trying to make connections because you will make connections through that. Make that a part of who you are because then you're going to be able to meet people with the same interests that you have and they will become your mentors. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Just before we sign off, is there anything that we didn't really get to touch on that you wanted to share or anything that we missed? No, I think you did a great job. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Kevin, Pacific Tango, and everything else that Kevin is up to related to Japan. If you enjoyed today's conversation, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new coffee page to help keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you would like, please leave me a voice message. You can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.